turning this morning to Psalm 70. Psalm 70, verse 2, will be the focus of my text, but we'll read these, this whole psalm before we consider its message to us. Psalm 70. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and confounded that seek after my soul. Let them be turned backward and put to confusion that desire my hurt. Let them be turned back for a reward of their shame that say, Aha, aha. Let all those that seek thee rejoice and be glad in thee, and let such as love thy salvation say continually, Let God be magnified. But I am poor and needy. Make haste unto me, O God. Thou art my help and my deliverer. O Lord, make no tarrying. I want to begin by asking a question. Are we spiritually streetwise? Now, of course, naturally, when we speak of being streetwise, we mean that we know how to look after ourselves when we are out and about. We would say of young children that they are not streetwise. They don't know the threats, the dangers that lurk. We would say of perhaps young people going away to university, we're anxious for them because they may be vulnerable, particularly if they're out late at night on the streets of some urban city. But when it comes to spiritual things, are we streetwise? That is to say, are we conscious of the dangers that we face? Are we aware of the threats to our soul? And how do we respond? Do we know how we are to be looked after, spiritually speaking? The people of God have many enemies. And this psalm reminds us of that fact. David says here, verse 2, Let them be ashamed and confounded that seek after my soul. And David had enemies in a very real and literal way. Saul was perhaps one of those first enemies. He saw David as a threat to the kingdom and therefore he sought to, to kill him. But there were many others, the Philistines, the Amalekites, and then there were those who rose up against David as conspirators and sought to, to usurp the kingdom from him. And many of the Lord's people too, over the centuries, especially those ministers whom the Lord has greatly used, they have known what it is to know and to have enemies who oppose them and threaten them. The greater our exploits, the more enemies we shall make. David knew that on account of the Goliath. Martin Luther, 
knew what it was to have enemies because he was a servant of Christ. So much so that on one occasion his friends kidnapped him. It was a mock kidnapping. He didn't realize it at the time, but they kidnapped him in order to preserve and protect him from those who would have killed him if they had the chance. George Whitfield knew what it was as an as a evangelist of Christ to make many enemies. He said this, if you are going to walk with Jesus Christ, you are going to be opposed. In our days, to be a true Christian, he said, is really to become a scandal. He said that in the early 1700s. And because he preached and warned against sin and the consequences of it, he had dead cats and rotten vegetables thrown at him many times. That's what it meant to be a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. Samuel Rutherford, the Scottish covenanter, was a man who knew very real enemies. Sadly, the bishops of Scotland in those days hated evangelical preaching and those who declared the word of God. And so he was sent in exile from Anworth, where his pastorate was, to Aberdeen for 22 months, and then towards the end of his life, the authorities determined that he should be executed because of his troublemaking preaching. He was faithful to Christ, and when the emissaries were sent from the king to arrest him and take him to Edinburgh for execution, he said this to them, I have a summons already from a superior judge. He knew he was dying. And I, I am behoved to answer my first summons. And when your day arrives, I shall be where few kings and great folks come. He never was executed because the Lord took him home. But he had many enemies. And so it will be for those who serve Jesus Christ today, or even simply walk with Christ. Those that live godly in Christ Jesus, said the Apostle Paul, shall suffer persecution. Well, this psalm not only applied to David, but it also applies to Jesus Christ himself. You say, well, how can that be? Well, David was a prophet. Acts chapter 2, verse 30 tells us that and his life and his experience were so often typical and prophetic and if David experienced bitter enemies how much more did his greater son the Lord Jesus Christ experience great enemies look at verse 3 here let them be turned back for a reward of their shame that say Aha, aha. There were those that delighted in David's misfortune, that scorned and mocked him when he knew trouble. And what was said of Christ when he hung at the cross at Calvary? They that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself 
If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking him, with the scribes and elders, said he saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Satan is the arch enemy of Jesus Christ. And Satan is the great champion who marshals individual men and women such that they oppose not only Christ, but the people of Christ. The Lord Jesus himself said, if they have hated me, then they will hate you also. And so we need to be aware that we have enemies if we have, by faith, come to serve and stand by the side of Jesus Christ. They may not always be personal enemies in the way that Rutherfield and Whitfield and David experienced personal opposition. Sometimes the enemies that we face will be more subtle and more spiritual. Satan not only acts as a roaring lion, he also acts through scheming deceit. And he will seek to do all he can to turn us away from the truth. Well, let's look at the character of the enemies referred to here in this psalm. Firstly, David said, they seek after my soul. Satan is the great enemy who seeks to ruin our souls. He seeks to destroy the souls of all people, not just Christians. He leads astray. Matthew Henry said, he seeks to disturb our minds and draw us into sin and despair. He's an, he is called the enemy by the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we see here that the enemies that David speaks of are those that would turn him from the Lord's ways. Now that's not immediately obvious, but the language of our text, verse 2, is something along these lines. Lord, turn them back. Give them what they have been trying to do. Let them fall into the pit that they have digged for me. They have sought to turn me back from the right ways of the Lord. Then turn them back, would. Put them to confusion. That desire my hurt. And how many there are that are marshaled by the great enemy of our souls to turn us back from the right ways of the Lord. The false prophets and teachers of this world. Those that say, live, the, your, live for this world. Live for the present life. Ignore the Lord. Don't take his word seriously. The false teachers who say, you can have an easygoing Christianity. You do not need to be wholly committed to the Lord. Cleave to him. Walk in holiness. Separate from the sinful ways of this world. They're the enemies of our soul. 
and they would seek to turn us away backward from the path of obedience, from confessing and holding sound doctrine, from the path of devotion to the service of God and Christ, from the pathway of consistent commitment to him and to his people. We have enemies, and those enemies, under Satan particularly, will subtly seek to turn us back from the way of truth and obedience. Thirdly, we see that David's enemies desired his hurt. Here at the end of verse 2, the phrase literally means to delight in my misfortune. There were those who were watching David and when, any, when he came into trouble or embarrassment or shame or when he faltered, they took great pleasure in it saying, aha, aha. And there are those enemies of the true Christian that delight to see us when we stumble into sin or when we encounter some misfortune on account of our Christianity, when things don't go well in our families, Satan gloats. And those who hate the truth of the gospel gloat. They're glad to see those troubles that we face. Lastly, we see here that they are quick to mock, the end of verse 3, saying, aha, aha. Now, these enemies may not always target us individually, but the enemies of Christ target the church collectively, the people of God seen as the institution or the family of God upon earth. How many there are that, that delight in the church's misfortunes when they see in the midst of the church's inconsistencies and sins when they see that she is being shamed or embarrassed before the world the world rejoice the enemies of the gospel take pleasure when she does not seem to be able to hold her own as it were in this world if you turn to the book of revelation i'm not going to turn to it now but chapter 11 speaks of two witnesses who torment the world. What are they? They are the church. Remember how Christ sent out his disciples two by two and they were to preach? The two witnesses there are the vigorous testimony of the church to the world, a warning ministry an exhorting ministry, a preaching ministry, a ministry that warns of judgment. But in that book, in chapter 11, you will see how the witnesses are killed and their dead bodies are left in the street. What's it a picture of? The Lord is foretelling through the Apostle John that there will come a time towards the end when the church as a powerful witnessing institution will be virtually silenced for a time. And then we are told that the people of the world rejoiced. They didn't care to bury the dead bodies 
they all had a party. Because that voice that had tormented them, the warning voice of God's judgment through the preaching instruments of the church was virtually silenced. That's the enemies of the Lord. They hate the message of the gospel, its warnings, its exhortations. They cannot wait for that to be silenced. And there are many who seek to turn the church backwards from the truth, from love and unity. That's what Satan wants to destroy, isn't it? The love and unity of the people of God. Holiness of life. Purity in worship. Soundness of doctrine. Energetic and faithful evangelistic work. The enemies of of the church will seek to thwart and resist and hinder all of those things. And Satan is the great enemy who orchestrates those schemes. So are we spiritually streetwise? That's the question I asked at the beginning. Well, are we conscious that we have enemies? Do we take the threat seriously? Or as Christians, do we just drift through life thinking, I'm all right. I know what I believe. I know how I'm going to live. I'm determined that I will not be turned backwards. I will be consistent. Don't be so sure. You are spiritually speaking, or I am if I think like that. I'm like that naive teenager who goes out late at night, not realizing that there are dangers. There are evil people who will cause harm. Spiritually speaking, we have to be savvy enough to know that these enemies are about. Well, are we spiritually streetwise? Here is the test. How often do you pray the language of this psalm? How often do you and I ask the Lord to preserve us from those enemies that would destroy our faith and turn us back from obedience to Christ? would undermine our convictions and our doctrines. How often in your private prayers do you say, Oh Lord, I need thy keeping power. I need thee to help me, lest I should go back and walk no more with thee. I need thee to preserve me from the temptations of the day. I need thee to help me to walk worthy and consistently. If we do not ever pray that prayer, then the chances are we do not take the reality of our spiritual enemies seriously. Prayer is our primary defense. You see, to be streetwise, we not only need to be conscious of the risks, the threats, but we also need to know how to protect ourselves. And when it comes to spiritual things, our defense is not within ourselves. Our defense is the Lord. And that's what David does here. Notice this is a psalm of remembrance. Actually, this psalm is almost word for word the final verses in Psalm 40. 
And it's as if David is reminding himself of a former prayer. Reminding himself of the exercise of praying for protection and for deliverance from spiritual enemies. Of his, his enemies, some of them were real, but not all of them. And so we have to take to heart this. We are to pray for protection. The key, key phrase, perhaps, in this psalm, it begins and it ends, make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me. There was a great consciousness on David's part that God must be his help. God must be his deliverer, his protector. Do not trust an arm of flesh. Do not be that self-confident Christian that says, I will never leave the Lord. We look to him and we say, oh Lord, keep me, deliver me, lest I should come to spiritual harm and hurt. Of course, we are not to be careless and just say, oh, well, I've prayed that God will protect me. So that's all I can do. David, whilst he prayed and committed the keeping of his life and his soul to the Lord, we are told that he behaved himself wisely. And spiritually, as Christians, we are to behave ourselves wisely. It's no use us going to the nightclub and then praying, oh Lord, keep me in this godless and debauched environment. We have to behave wisely. If we expose ourselves on the internet to all sorts of false teaching and they say, oh Lord, I'm so confused by what I'm hearing and reading here, please keep me. We have to behave wisely and discerning. And when we sense that something is not biblical or not right, we turn away. We do not carry on following that path. But ultimately, the Lord must be our deliverer and our keeper. Look at the beginning of Psalm 71. Some people put these two psalms together. In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Let me never be put to confusion, to shame or embarrassment, that I've been led astray by some false doctrine or by some foolish pathway. Be my, be my keeper, I trust thee. Deliver me in thy righteousness. Cause me to escape. I will come under temptations. I know the enemy will do all he can to uh, provoke me to sinful thoughts and to foolish decisions. But Lord, cause me to escape. Save me from Satan's arts and wiles. Be thou my strong habitation, whereunto I may continually resort. Verse 5, for thou art my hope, O Lord, thou art my trust from my youth. Now in this psalm, David appears to be praying for his enemies in a bad way. We call it an imprecatory psalm. He prayed for their destruction or he prayed that they would be put to confusion. Is that right? 
can we pray such words? Should we pray such words? Not if it's with personal vindictiveness, of course. And David was not speaking in that way here. In some ways, what he prayed for was for their repentance. Let them see the folly of resisting a man of God who is walking in righteousness. Let them become ashamed that they have resisted the right ways of the living God. But we must also pray against those who would harm the church of Jesus Christ. We do so humbly. We do so with a degree of compassion and sympathy. But when the enemies of Christ and the enemies of souls rise up and promote error and false teaching and worldly things, when we see in our land those whose voices are loudest, who are in direct opposition to that which leads people to life and salvation, we must pray against them. It's not wrong. We do not do it out of personal vendetta or vindictiveness, but out of zeal for Christ and love for the lost. The third thing I want to say here, we've looked at, are we aware of our enemies, streetwise in that sense? Do we know the form of defense that we have? It is through prayer, through looking to the Lord, ultimately for safety and deliverance. But the final thing I want to say here is that the spiritual battle can make us negative. We can have that siege mentality and we see trouble and troublemakers and threats all around us. And to a certain extent, we should think like that, but not so that we become negative. And David doesn't hear in this psalm. Look at verse four. Let all those that seek thee rejoice and be glad in thee. And let such as love thy salvation say continually, let God be magnified. What's David's thinking here? Well, it's threefold in a sense. Firstly, here, his prayer for deliverance is alongside a prayer for the prosperity of all God's people. He wants to know God's salvation afresh. Let those that love thy salvation say continually, let God be magnified. In one sense, what he's saying is something like this. I've experienced God's saving grace. He saved my soul. But now I want to experience that salvation over and over again. I want to be saved from folly. I want to be saved from false teaching. I want to be saved from those who would hurt my soul, who would ruin me. I want to know on a daily basis fresh deliverances, fresh salvations, fresh cause to be able to say, let God be magnified. Now, of course, there is here 
an affirmation of his faith. Let such as love thy salvation say continually, let God be magnified. He's saying something like this. I don't want to save myself. I want to be saved by my Savior, by my God. In all the troubles of life, in all the dangers that I am exposed to, ultimately, I want to be delivered by the Lord, by his ways, by his hand. I don't want to put my hand to it. Now, of course, we are to resist the devil steadfast in the faith. We are to crucify sin with its affections and lusts. But at the same time, we look to the Lord and we make him our chief delight. We want him to, we want to know that he has saved us and not we ourselves. What does this phrase mean? Let such as love thy salvation. Does this describe you, my friend, this morning? These are those that David, and in a sense this is Christ's prayer too, David prays that such as love his salvation should be able to say, let God be magnified. Have cause for praise. Are you one of whom it can be said that you love God's salvation or Christ's salvation? What does it mean to love God's salvation? Well, I came across a description or an explanation of this little phrase by an old preacher called John Frame. I've never heard of him. But C.H. Spurgeon recommends his comment. And so let me read. This is what it means to love thy salvation. They love it for its own sake. They love it for the sake of him who procured it by his obedience unto death. Do you love salvation? Because it's Christ who has procured it by his death. They love it for the sake of the Holy Spirit who moved them to seek and accept it. Christ has wrought a great means for the salvation of my soul from sin, from death, from Satan, from all that would do me harm. And that salvation has been made known to me by the Lord, by the Holy Spirit. He's moved me to seek that salvation and to accept it. And I love it because it's that which God has brought home to my soul. They love it for the sake of their own souls, he says, which without it would be the most miserable outcasts in the universe. Without this salvation, I could not be happy. Without the salvation that Christ has procured by his shed blood, I could never know peace and joy and hope of eternal life to come. And therefore I love this salvation. Men will always love something, he says. Some love money more than God's salvation. Is that you? Some love pleasure more than Christ's salvation. Perhaps that's you. 
even the pleasures of sin. Some love more than God's salvation. Others love bustle and business more than God's salvation. Perhaps you're a decent fellow, but you're so absorbed with the business of life or family. Do you love the salvation that God has spoken of in his word, magnified through Christ, brought home to your heart through the gospel? Do you love that more than all these things? Then David says, let such say continually, let God be magnified. I will praise him, not only that he saved my soul, but I will praise him that through all the dangers that my soul faces, week by week, day by day, as a child of God, I have proved his preserving care, his delivering hand, his faithfulness. For may the Lord bless his word to us. Amen.